Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peace. Here on a Minor Detail Podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to A Minor Detail. This is live on Sunday evening, the last day of the quarter, and I'm getting dozens of emails from presidential candidates begging me for money. Len, you probably have gotten a few emails today from uh, whatever – name the candidate and the, whoever's out there, and they're asking me. It's like they're ringing the emergency bell. They're, they're, it's the last call before – tomorrow which is july 1st and you know candidates they always need money so i i didn't give any money today i'd never even heard of andrew yang until <laughs> i saw him on that debate the other night and next thing i know he's he's emailing me asking me to chip in five dollars because his fbc quarterly report is coming due and he's got to show that he's still viable and i said well that just raises more than a few questions to begin with if, if we're talking about Andrew Yang and viability in the same sense, but I could probably put more than a few of these candidates in the same position. Damn, there is that kickoff to a minor detail podcast. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. I am with my esteemed and and longstanding and permanent guest host of the show, Lynn Foxwell. And you know what, Lynn? I was thinking about something the other day, and you and I have a lot of offline conversations. But you know, you you told me, and I kind of thought, well, how do I want? Really, what is my brand in Maryland? What do I want to be? How do I want to be perceived? And the and the honest answer is, and I get a lot of flack from people in the, the traditional realm of journalism, the the traditional state house reporters. Not flack, but maybe some pushback. And you know, I hear this: well, you're not a real journalist, or you're not this, you're that. And it's like, well, tell me what journalism really is. You know, I I journal the news, I present it, um, I don't add my opinion to the actual news. Uh, portion of my website, but Len, at heart, I'm I'm comfortable being a disruptor, and you know I talked about that, and I finally figured it out. I was ta- had a long conversation the other day, in in a, on a car ride with my wife, and we went to Philadelphia, and I and I just asked her, cause she's truly you know the person whom I trust really the most, and she's like, you know, look, you got to be yourself, just go out and be a disruptor, and you, present the news the way that you want to. And you do your own thing. You don't have to abide by any oversight. Just do your thing and present the, the, the news in Maryland fairly and accurately, but have some fun doing it. You know, Ryan, to me, to say that you're not a real journalist is like saying that Airbnb isn't a real hotel hmm. or Uber's not a real taxi cab or Union Craft isn't a real beer. Uh you are the next generation of the industry. You are the next leap forward 
in the evolutionary progression. That's the way I see you. You are what you are what journalism is about to become. And you are out there on the cutting edge. You and I have talked about that offline. I might as well say it right here this evening on a minor detail. You are a disruptor, but more than that, you are the next generation uh, of the craft. And you do it very, very well. You are a trailblazer, and you should be proud of what you've accomplished here in Maryland because you are making a difference. You know, I'm I'm humbled by that, Lynn, and I I really appreciate that. I'm just going to keep going. One step forward, I I think that there's many different news sources in Maryland that are – that are worth reading, um, Baltimore Sun, and of course the the Washington Post, uh, Maryland Matters, our, our good friend Josh Kurtz, and there's some there's some good stuff out there. And I'm just doing a little bit I'm just doing a little bit differently, and that's okay. And I'm I'm in my space, I'm in my territory, and uh, I'm I'm confident about my future and what I hope to accomplish. Um, Lynn, aside from that. There's a lot of things that we're going to talk about tonight. I didn't I didn't put anything in the description of the show tonight um, because there's just so many different topics that we can cover. The last live show that we did was on Sine Die, and we had a, a, a long conversation about um, the the speaker who had just passed. But speaking of that, I I, I want to just bring to this. I, I want to bring up um, before we begin. Um, I hate to start the show on a somber note, but um, the the comptroller's father has recently passed away and when when i when i first learned that news i i gotta be honest it really it really hit me hard because i i, I didn't know um douglas Francho, i didn't know the comptroller's dad but um the comptroller was in hagerstown in the beginning of june and he stopped at antonin brewery and i was over there and i was covering the event and i yeah. i had just whispered in alex's ear i said hey um i i know that it's it's last minute and i i please by no means Feel that you're obligated to say yes, but I'd love for the comptroller just to stop by and visit my grandparents. And he did, and he saw my grandmother and grandfather. And there, my granddad's 94. He's a World War II uh, veteran, and my grandmother's 87. She has a little bit of dementia, but um, just when Peter stopped over and saw them that that evening on a Thursday evening, I mean, really, I I can't say. I mean, it was hard to put into words just how generous and gracious and kind that that act was just a simple act from someone that my grandparents will remember for the rest of their lives. And he presented them with a, uh, a comptroller's coin and the, the comptroller's father, Douglas was such a huge influential part of Peter's life. Peter always talked about him on the campaign trail and in private. And that night he was actually going to visit his dad after seeing my grandparents at Riderwood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Lynn, it, it just, you know, it, it really kind of choked me up a little bit. Um, and I was just hoping you could say a few words then about um, the comptroller's dad. Well, Ryan, I was privileged to have known Mr. Franco for years. And best way I can describe it, Douglas Franco is the best of what America used to be. Amen. This is a man who, this is a, this is a man of old school manners, old school values. He believed that if you truly have it, and by it, I mean social standing, um, um, financial security, the esteem of your colleagues within your chosen profession, you don't have to talk about it. You totally don't have to show it and flaunt it because people know you've got it. This is a man who rose in the defense of his country and to the call of duty. And flew B-24 bomber pilots 
in the Pacific during World War II. The planes were appropriately called the Liberator. Came home, graduated from Yale University, became one of the most respected and accomplished um, private sector lawyers of his generation, working for companies like the Ford Motor Company. Um, raised his family, uh, was, was extremely close to his, to his children, and much has been said about my relationship with, with Peter. And I've been, not long ago, I was called on another show, Peter's chief advisor. I said, well, let me, let me thank you for the compliment, but let me correct you at the same time. I'm not Peter's chief advisor. Douglas Franco is his chief advisor. He always was. And he was yeah. rampant until the day he died. And, you know, and the great thing, that, and I'll, I'll never forget that conversation I had with Mr. Franco. It was, it was probably about a year ago. It was when Peter was running for re-election. And he was telling me about some scientific innovations that he, ha- that he had read about that would totally change the way we live, and change the contours of the American economy. And I, I said, Mr. Franco, I said, I'm just so impressed that at your age, you're still thinking about the future. When I get to be your age, I am just going to be that grumpy old man who yearns for the past. And he laughed, and uh, and he and he said, "Well, all we have is the future." <laughs> and he, well, he was a giant, and uh, we miss him. But you know, he he lived to see. Yeah, you know, he lived a, a remarkable American life, and he lived long enough, right? see his son elected to four terms as a comptroller of Maryland and to be reelected with the highest vote total in our state's history. So he uh, lived long, he lived well, and he went out on a high note. I I saw Peter's love for his father firsthand, and, uh, you know, there's nothing like the love that a father and son have. And uh, I I know that the Franco family, while they can celebrate the 97 years that um, their their dad was was um, with, with Douglas was on this planet, but it's it's hard losing a, a, a parent. I as I as, as as any son or daughter can imagine, our family just went through it with my wife's dad. But uh, you know, I'm yeah. Peter is in my thoughts and prayers. I I know that uh, it's a tough time, but Len, I, I understand that there's a a memorial service coming up. Um, could you share any details about that? Sure. It's going to be on Saturday, the 13th of July. It's open to the public. Anyone who wants to come and pay their respects to Mr. Franco and uh, spend time with Peter and his wife, Anne, and their kids. Uh, it'll be on Saturday, the 13th of July, 11 o'clock at Riderwood Chapel. Yeah. And then there will be a public reception that follows at Denison's Brewing in downtown Silver Spring. <laughs> The way that That'll he would be, want it. You know, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. And uh, Mr. Franco, obviously by virtue of that last name, he wasn't Irish. But somewhere <laughs> along the line, he had a little bit of Irish in him because I think that he'd want to have a good wake in his honor. And uh, I think that's what the family wants as well, just to have a couple of good Maryland beers, good food, and to spend time reminiscing with good friends. And so that's going to be at 1 o'clock. And I think the Peter and Ann would love to see as many of their friends come out as can fit into their busy schedule, knowing that it's a time when a lot of folks will be traveling and on vacation. So I appreciate you asking about that. I hope to see you guys there too, Ryan. Hope that you and Kim can make it. 
Absolutely, we will. We will definitely be there. And Riderwood is a a beautiful retirement community. I I know many of the staff over there, and I think that um, you know we wouldn't miss this for the world to pay our respects. And speaking, you use the word giant. Speaking of another Maryland giant, um, our Clayton Clay Mitchell Jr. passed away on June 14th. The former Speaker of the House, and of course we know his son uh, Clay, and um, you know. I had only wished in my in my short career um, covering Maryland politics, even though I'm a lifelong Marylander, to have built a relationship with the late speaker. And, you know, my heart goes out to him as well. And you knew him pretty well. You knew the family well. Um, and and Len, and maybe you could say a few words about the late speaker. Well, you know, Ryan, I grew up on the Eastern Shore. and. Yeah. The time when I was first getting involved in politics in the late 80s, heading into the early 90s when I was going from high school into college and just coming out of college into the uh, into the world of politics, Clay Mitchell was Speaker of the House. And uh, he was a giant on the Eastern Shore. And what I'll never forget is that for for as high as he rose in state politics, he never forgot the folks back home. To the folks back in places like Galena and Kennedyville and Chestertown, he was still just good old Clay. Yeah. And I was just in awe of the man. When I finally got to a point where I could actually have a, you know, a, a personal relationship with Speaker Mitchell, I, I could. He would ask me to call him by his first name, but I couldn't do it. He was the speaker. <laughs> He's my speaker, and you know what? He always will be. He he I, he'll be my speaker forever. That man did as much, if not more, for the Eastern Shore than anybody who went before him and anybody that, that, that's about to come. Um, yeah. I was at the service. Uh, I had the, had the privilege of attending his, his funeral, and everyone from the family got up and, and just spoke with such wit and insight and eloquence into the man. Let me tell you something. You mentioned, you mentioned his son, Clay. Yeah. Clay stepped up and delivered, and... I don't know what I don't know what Clay has uh, in his future. I don't know what's in his plans other than serving as the uh, serving as the, uh, the the chairman of the uh, workforce relations or workforce investment board or wherever that is. A huge but role. It is. Clay yeah. is the keeper of the flame, and yeah. and uh, and and that that legacy of service above self that has embodied the Mitchell name for the decades. It's never going to go away as long as Clay Mitchell's in public life. So um, sad for the passing of a, another Maryland political giant, but I'm very excited to see where Clay, young Clay's political career takes him. But um, most of all, he, his heart goes out to the family because he was her father, grandfather, and my, his wife passed away you know, not too long ago. And yeah. so these kids have been out both of their parents now, and they miss them. Well, miss amen them. to that. And our my thoughts and prayers are with the Mitchell family. And the late speaker would be very proud to know that his son was just appointed the chairman of the Board of Appeals for the Maryland Department of Labor. And there's there's no better Eastern Shoreman than Clay Mitchell and his son. And I got to tell you, I've gotten to know Clay pretty well over the last couple of months. And, um, I'm, I'm honored to call him a friend. I'm honored that, uh, he, he calls me a friend and, um, you know, there, 
they're just a hell of a good family, decent people. And that's, that's Maryland, man. There's some great Maryland families out there. Um, that's Lynn, right. um, on shifting directions just a bit, I don't even know where to begin. There's a lot of politics that we could talk about, but um, where, where I think we could begin tonight and we'll keep it at an hour. <laughs> um, sure. But uh, what I'm thinking is, is that let's talk, let's, let's first talk about this past week and then we'll work backwards into some Annapolis politics and um, some of the, the big ticket Maryland items now is slow season in Maryland, right? We're all trying to search for, for news. I mean, it's not a, a massively busy time. It's not a hustle and bustle. Um, reporters and the other journalists around the state are They have to really go out and scoop some news up during uh, the summertime. Of course, the annual Talls Festival is coming up. Folks, I know a couple of folks who are still sitting in the basement of the state house waiting for news to come their way. <laughs> we won't mention any names tonight. Um, <laughs> well, you know, speaking of uh, – I'm not in the basement of the state capitol house, but I got to tell you, um, I wouldn't want to be either because that place is dingy and dark, and uh, I don't want I don't want old Alex coming after me when I write a story about uh, – uh, the, the leadership. So, um, yeah. And I, I, I wonder, you know, I was just thinking to myself, um, I, I want to get into gerrymandering, but you know, I wonder, I always think like, what is Eric Lukey up to since he blocked me on Twitter? Um, hmm. cause I can't follow him anymore. I don't know what he's up to. I, I know that he's, he's quite busy with, um, being a partisan Democrat and being the brigade commander of the, the, the Maryland Democratic Caucus and leading uh, his fellow Democrats into the consummate battle um, with the Republicans. And, you know, if Larry Hogan steps out of the bathtub wrong, there will be a press release released by the Democratic Caucus about that. But um, I always to say, like, what's it, what's Eric Lukey up to now that he's he's blocked me on Twitter um, since I've openly disagreed with him and, and called him out on some of his hypocrisy? Um, I wonder he's wonder what he's getting into, Len. Uh, is he is he trashing have, the controller? Nah, I haven't seen anything from 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 Eric lately about Peter. If I had to guess, seeing as how it's as we're sitting here, it's June 30th. We're getting ready to start the, believe it or not, the new fiscal year and heading into the July 4th holiday week. I suspect he's he's out somewhere with his kids, taking yeah. in a couple of Maryland state parks. Um. Hopefully, just in, enjoying enjoying life and taking a breather from the rigors of the business. Amen. Um, that's what this. That's what we all should be doing at this at this time. Because, you know, I mean, I, I can't believe it. Just felt like yesterday, Ryan. You and I were sitting at Chesapeake Brewing on the first day of the legislative session <laughs> on that windy night in January, talking about everything that was to come. And it feels like these last five months have gone by in the blink of an eye. I mean, so, think about it. Think about it. we were there on uh, the first day of session. It was cold. You're right. It was windy. Um, I think we got some snow that day. It was damp. And we're we're doing a show, a live show at Chesapeake Brewing, and we're talking about all the things to come and the amount of news that happened in that in that time period. I mean, man, things have dramatically shifted. And here we are, June 30th. We're going into the latter half of 2019. National politics are crazy. There's a presidential election in full swing. Uh, we have a new Speaker of the House, the first African-American woman um, 
and the first female speaker, nonetheless. And it's just it's remarkable the changes that have happened over time. And Lynn, this past week, pretty busy week in politics with the Supreme Court's decision, uh, the census question, and another decision, the Lamone the Venisac case directly affecting Maryland's sixth congressional district and people who don't know the backstory, it's pretty not it's it's, it's pretty uncomplicated. The some plaintiffs, some Republicans in Maryland's sixth congressional district, ultimately decided that after the, the the district boundaries were redrawn in 2011 by Martin O'Malley and the the Democratic supermajority in the legislature, legis, um, the General Assembly. Um, some plaintiffs decided that the congressional boundaries violated their First Amendment rights. Um, they said that they intentionally uh, limited their speech. So here we are. They they took it to court. It went through um, a couple of different processes, and then the day after the election, literally the day after the November 2018 election, on a Wednesday, a Maryland district court federal – a three – a three-judge panel ruled that the congressional lines were gerrymandered, and they have to throw out the map. Larry Hogan started an independent commission to redraw the lines, um, and then they were going. They first wanted to to do it at the state level, and then the attorney general argued against the governor's decision on the merits that it should be a federalized approach. And of course, I understand that argument. Then they went. They had oral arguments in March, I believe, um, and then ultimately they decided um, on Thursday that the, I think it was the last day of the term that partisan gerrymandering cannot become before the courts. It was sort of a federalism argument that really the courts have no basis to make legislative decisions or decide what districts have been gerrymandered. So essentially now the case is tossed back to – Maryland, and it's up to – I think it will be up to our legislature, if I understand mm-hmm. correctly, to make those to, – to, to redraw the district boundaries. And, or they could just leave it as it is, Lynn. They don't have to do anything. So that was sort of a big slap in the face to, to reformers uh, that wanted to see gerrymandering um, uprooted, and they wanted the court to rule on it. But the court they, – they punted it, which I thought was going to happen. Um, so – what do you what do you make of all this, Len? What I, and I, and then no, we'll talk was, about some of the outcomes. Graceful. I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna you know, I, I'm not gonna sit here you know with without so much as a juris doctorate and and second guess the legal reasoning of five members of the Supreme Court. Although I will point out for the record that it, that the arguments fell largely along partisan lines. I I think you have a right. Um, it was a cop out from the Supreme Court. It was a, a it was a slap in the face of those voters who feel disenfranchised and disrespected by uh, district lines that care little, care little to nothing about um, their rights as a taxpaying constituent, a taxpaying citizen, and focus exclusively on the partisan prerogatives of the party and political power. <laughs> and we have right now a – some of, right now, Maryland stands as one of the most disgraceful examples of partisan redistricting in the country. And oh, we, sure. much, you know, the, 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 su- the subject was 
the sixth congressional district, and for good reason. But we also have the third congressional district, represented capably by John Sarbanes, a district. Yeah, well, he's a he's an estimable lawmaker, the sign of a of a great political family. His district has been described as aesthetically resembling that of a broken wing, uh, a was a broken wing pterodactyl. Yeah, it's, um, it's a mess. The, fir- the first district, the first district in which I reside, stretches from from the uh, from Smith Island, Maryland, south of Crisfield, accessible only by a boat, all the way up the eastern shore, down the 95 corridor, uh, and 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 up through Westminster and all the way up to Tawny Town, within spitting distance of the Pennsylvania line. Um, these districts, Ryan, as you well know, are supposed to conjoin communities of shared interest, um, which, which obviously enhances, at least in theory, enhance the quality of the congressional representation and ensure that um, the people's voices are amplified just by that kind of condensation. And we don't have that anymore. Uh, there's always been an element of politics. I've never seen it as bad as it is as it is today. I find it fascinating that a Supreme Court that, in this same term, saw fit to weigh in on local matters such as states requiring applicants for a retail liquor license uh, to be residents of the state for two years before they can successfully <laughs> apply. They feel comfortable weighing in on that. But on a policy which disenfranchises voters, breeds alienation and estrangement from the process, and essentially allows politicians to pick their constituents rather than the other way around, they decide to take a pass and say it's beyond our scope. Yeah, I should be disgusted. It is. It is, especially for reformers who know that partisan gerrymandering is a threat to democracy. That's a real argument, and I think. That if you read anything this week or if you read anything from last week, perhaps go back and read Justice Elena Kagan's dissent. It's, it's very strongly worded, and she was in the dissent, and it was a five-to-four decision. And now that we know that – I don't know if John Roberts was attempting to preserve the sort of the, uh, uh, the, the court's integrity of, of something, but – John John Roberts essentially become the new Anthony Kennedy of the court, and Roberts hasn't always been right. But I, you know, in this case especially, I just don't understand the judicial reasoning behind it. Um, I'm not look. I'm I, I don't have a JD. I'm I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer. But I've studied this case in depth and have talked to brilliant people that like Walter Olson. Um, so I, you know, Lynn, I live in Maryland Sixth District. In 2011, when they redrew the congressional lines, they they have they they have said openly. Martin O'Malley said it. Look, we we did this to to gain another Democratic seat. They ousted Roscoe Bartlett, who was in Congress um, since 1990 90 or 92, True. I believe. Yeah, 92. Mm-hmm. And then John Delaney, who's now running for president, um, he he stepped in and. But if you remember, interestingly enough, about the 2012 election, that was not supposed to be John Delaney's seat. In fact, it was supposed it to was be not indeed. a little-known state, se- state senator from District 15 named Rob Garagiola. That was intentionally carved out for 
at Senate, then Senator Garagiola, who's a decent guy. Um, I've gotten to know him a little bit uh, being in Annapolis, and he was the quote unquote the the establishment pick. He went in, and then out comes John Delaney that some people may have heard of, but John Delaney was new to politics. He spent a lot of money on his first race. I think it was like four million dollars, and he won the primary and then won three terms in Congress and. Now he's running for president, so so goes it. And then last year, David Trone, who is also very wealthy, is from Potomac. Everybody who's run in the last couple of years, have, they all live in Potomac, which is funny enough. They, they actually live outside the district. John Delaney never lived inside the district. I mean, look, he lived, I think, a block and a half away across River Road. But still, David Trone lives outside the district. He lives in the 8th. Ami Hober, the Republican, she lived she lives in the 8th. In fact, she lives three or four doors down from John Delaney. And look, Potomac is a beautiful place, Lynn. You know it well. I know it well. I, I go to the Potomac Starbucks there all the time. That's my secondary office when I want to people watch and watch uh, the housewives of Potomac roll up in their Mercedes-Benz, and um, they, they can't parth work a dam inside of that, that uh, Potomac parking lot um, in Potomac Village. <laughs> but I got to – I'm serious, man. It's, they are the worst freaking parkers ever down in – and they don't give a shit either. I'm telling you, they are the they're just they're just rich and uppity and rude sometimes, and it just pisses my wife and I off because we're like we just want to come down here for a cup of coffee. Um, so, Potomac, they, pro- they, pro- to- they probably they probably have they probably have little in common either politically or personally uh, with their counterparts, stopping in for coffee at the corner tavern in Cumberland. Yeah. Or uh, taking in a taking in a Hagerstown Suns game uh, on South Potomac Street, but they all but they all sit collectively in the sixth congressional district. What I find fascinating is that this Supreme Court has generally expressed very little reticence in the past uh, about about intervening in matters of elections and election law. I mean, this is a, this is this is the same nine person body uh, that effectively called a halt to the 2000 presidential election and handed the election to George W. Bush. And then several years later ruled uh, in the famous Citizens United case that for purposes of campaign contributions, corporations are people too. Yeah. So um, there is a, and, and we could go on and on about the history of judicial activism when it comes from this court in the matters of how elections are prosecuted in this country. It's why it makes it all the more baffling that on this matter that is that is so fundamental, existential to the integrity of the process, they'd say, I'm sorry, this is not our department. We're kicking it back yeah. to the states. Well, um, it's, and, it's a yeah, shame. It's, it's, it's hard to it, – it, 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 it's, look, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to look at it, Ryan, and not arrive at the conclusion that there is some partisan thinking going on here because while Maryland is a democratic machine, we've talked about that in the past, the fact is that most of the state houses are Republican occupied territory. Yeah. So the preservation of the status quo ultimately benefits the Republican Party more than it does the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's a salient point too. And even though Maryland has a Democratic supermajority, the majority of state houses are controlled by Republicans. But Martin O'Malley is certainly not innocent either. And I thought that after no. the I thought that after the the case was handed down, the the Senate 
the Senate leader, uh, Mike Miller, the Senate president, he issued this statement, Lynn, that sort of was baffling to me. A clarion call for reform. Yeah, and I, I just want to just read – I mean he, I want to read this on the air. He said, from the beginning of this process, we have said that while our map is constitutional, there is still an issue that requires a national solution. The Supreme Court ruling only strengthens the need for Congress and the president to work together to create a set of rules across the country. And I renew our call on Congress to present a set of rules and for the president to sign it. With this lawsuit over, I hope we can put the issue of the 2011 redistricting to rest and focus on the many pressing issues facing all Marylanders. And Lynn, I don't know who wrote that. I don't know if that was Jake Weissman who quickly fired off that statement in the heat of the moment soon after that court decision was handed down and they had time to process it. And, and maybe sip through some of the uh, the decisions and um, and dissents. But I thought that that statement was incredibly tone deaf, and that was a slap in the face to all Marylanders who believe in fair con- congressional districts. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know if that was that statement was entirely thought out because the way that I read it, yes, they're looking for a nationalized solution. But in the meantime, let's just go on about our business and forget that it ever happened and that our supermajority – I mean, and I said it to you. I mean, look, if and and I, I got some feedback from people that are like, well, you really shouldn't be saying this. But there, oh, it's and because I, I said this is the machine politics at play. This is the definitional idea of what machine politics is. It's the establishment. Go along. Forget about what happened, knowing that we rigged the sixth district to oust a Republican when it, the sixth district, of course, should be in Republican hands. There's there, there's no reason why. That Potomac, Maryland should be in the same district as Deep Creek Lake. It's just foolish. And then the Senate major, the Senate leader, our Senate president, basically says, "Well, let's just go on about other our business and look at other issues." Well, this is a pretty big issue, Lynn, and I just don't understand what Mike Miller was thinking. Maybe he didn't write the statement. Um, I'm assuming he didn't. I'm assuming Jake wrote the statement, and uh, I just thought it, that it was short-sighted and a little myopic. Look, and it's not without political risk, Ryan. I've seen several polls, and if you if you go beyond some of the horse race questions that are common to all these surveys that come across, that come into your inbox and that come into mine, what I'm seeing is greater frustration and resentment than I've seen in the past about the inherent corruption of our political system. The bastardization yeah. of politics, Thoughts. and yeah. more so, more so than any specific issue, whether it's education or healthcare or alternative sustainable energy. Not to say those issues aren't important, but what I'm hearing, what I'm, what I'm seeing in, in survey research, and what I'm hearing on the street as I travel around this state with the comptroller, is that people are tired of the sleazy backroom politics as usual. They are tired of machine politics. We saw them a little bit last year, didn't we, Ryan, where uh, the first time you and I did this program together, the machines picked for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination went down in the Democratic primary. The machines picked for the uh, machines picked for the Baltimore County executive seat to replace the late Kevin Kamenetz went down in the Democratic primary. Mac Milton, <laughs> Joan Carter Conway, the list goes on of people who who hitched their wagon Nate to the McFadden. officers. 
Nate McFadden, uh, and went down. Um, Red Jimmy. And it's good. Hard to call Red Jimmy a no, uh, a of the political establishment. He, he's a man <laughs> who's almost he's, he's unique, if not singular, in his approach to politics. And I and I have and I have heard that uh, he has an active talks with Marianne Williams about being possibly her ambassador to the Isle of Tonga. So I do I do hope that works out for the Scarlet one. But people are people are looking for something different. And I agree with you, Ryan, to to, to basically say. Let's kick it back to let's kick it back to Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi with hopes that Congress can get something done. That's almost a that's a sneering slap in the face at to all Marylanders. Why? Where was the statement to say deserve better? I, and look, I understand that Mike Miller has to defend the status quo. He's been doing it for years. But where was the statement to say, all right, let's look to work with the governor on coming up with independent lines and let's let's reshift our focus to to paying attention to what Marylanders want and that's just the basic right of being able to live in a congressional district that matches their interests. Not everybody's going to be happy. It's not always going to be perfect. But looking at the 3rd congressional district which is a mess. I mean, you can't drive through the 3rd congressional district without ending up in a separate con- three or four other ones and you know, and if it takes four and a half hours from uh, Potomac Village all the way up to Deep Creek, we got a problem. We got a major problem. Lane. Well, Ryan, he's he, he he's not he's not going to say that because he can say that because the status quo works just fine for those who are in power, and that's the problem with Maryland politics right now. The system works just fine for a few people at the what what would I call the political one percent. Works well, fine and- for those Democratic members of Congress who have a relative. Well, not even a relatively safe seat. Uh, who have a seat for life if they want it, and it works fine for for David Trung. God bless him. He has a Democratic lead district. He has the resources to hold on to that seat as long as he wants it. Who who does it not work for? Well, you ask someone. You ask a Democrat here in Maryland, in the first district of Maryland, come down to one of your favorite towns in St. Michael's, yeah, and ask, well. What are the chances you're going to have a a fair, competitive congressional election? They won't even be able to tell you who their member of Congress is because yeah, they don't see uh, Andy Harris. No, uh, Andy Harris is is not a man of the people. He's not someone who likes to get out of Baltimore County when he doesn't have to, when he's not in Washington. He's so busy. Um, you know, he's, he's so busy <laughs> – um, fighting marijuana over in the district lines, he's he's exceptionally busy sucking up to the president of the United States, um, who, by the way, today um, went onto a an enemy's territory and made a spectacle out of shaking hands with uh, someone who murders journalists, who kills his own people, who killed his own half brother, who sent an American citizen back in a coma. Who and then who inevitably died uh, later, and, and this is who. Been, and if that had been Barack Obama, the alt right would have been calling him a traitor to the United him. States of America, and and uh, because Donald Trump went across the across the demilitarized zone, they're hailing him as the second coming of Henry Kissinger. Yeah, and yeah. The, the the sad part about it is is that 
what really is going to happen. Donald Trump knows television. He knows optics. And inviting a brutal dictator who, again, kills his own people, places them in massive starvation, enslaves them to the state, and he wants to invite him to the White House under the guise of peace. Well, Lynn, I think that's foolish. I think that that is a detriment to our country. It is an insult to every man and woman who put on our nation's uniform to fight for our country. And that, it's reckless. And you know what? If Barack Obama had done the same thing, they would have said that he's capitulating to foreign dictators, and they have. The right has right. said that. They have thrown that in his face. But just to back up for just a second, um, and we'll, we'll switch topics in just a moment, the, the fallout from the 6th Congressional, the, kind of the effects – of the gerrymandering case, Len. So the takeaways from this is that, as you mentioned earlier, David Trone's likely going to maintain his congressional seat. He's not going to go anywhere unless he decides to run for higher office or whatnot. And it really affects – look, Neil Parrott sent out this desperate email the other day saying that he's going he's to continue on with his exploratory committee. But why? Why would you continue that? I mean Neil Parrott has – he will never win the 6th District with the the lines drawn as they are, as they are yeah, standing but now. Us, but it keeps people – but, you know, why does it, Ryan? Because we're sitting here right now on Sunday night talking about it. And true, he, he might true. Get six li- he gets six lines in the in the Herald Mail of him talking. That's what he lives for. He just lives for column inches. He's, you know, in a town full of media whores, he's about the worst one. Um, and this is a guy who went out and held one of the worst optical, aesthetically displeasing press – conferences I've ever seen in my life and in the parking lot of some random spot to trounce on the comptroller for disinvesting from Alabama. Look, Neil (laughs) Parrott is Neil Parrott. I mean, Neil Parrott is Neil Parrott. And and he's a nice man who has some bizarre politics. And in 2005, this is the same gentleman that we're talking about who wrote a letter to the Herald Mail saying that people with HIV should be subjected to a government-mandated tattoo, and he called that the compassionate solution. I mean, I, I don't know if he was looking for the final solution, which would be eerily similar to Nazism in actually giving people uh, tattoos, but I mean, Neil Parrott's politics are very uniquely right-wing and conservative, and he calls himself a champion of religious freedom. That's fine. I, you know, I, it, that's his shtick. He doesn't get a whole lot accomplished, and he hasn't in, in the General Assembly. In fact, many of his colleagues, they just tolerate him and put up with him. And um, I mean, this is, the, <laughs> this is the same guy that voted against the first African female speaker in the history of Maryland and then later just changed his vote on the House floor. Um, I, 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 Neil Parrott needs attention and and this is his way to get it, and I respect yeah, we, that. Yeah, we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't jump on it too hard. I, I remember when that happened, and, and um, you know, my staff called and said, "Should we put something out?" And I was like, "Well, that's just Neil Parrott jumping on the comptroller for his justifiable concern about <laughs> investing in a state with such, re, re, you know, just such regressive, unacceptable right-wing views of the state of Alabama, who's trying to go back to the 18th century and their." in their society and deserves an 18th century economy to go with it. I said, guys, that's just like a three-toed sloth trying to piss on a Wolverine. Uh, <laughs> just let it go because we just can't, we don't even feel it. Just let it go. Um, yeah. But, yeah. 
but you, but you know, I mean, getting back, getting back to redistricting. Final word for at least for me is yeah. every year after the elections, we all come together as the political class in the state of Maryland. We wring our hands and we cluck our tongues and we and we sit there with great earnestness and ask ourselves rhetorically, what can we do to get people more excited about politics? And what's it going to take to inspire greater voter turnout when, you know, maybe when it's not a presidential election year? What kind well, of message, what kind of message are we sending? What kind of message are we sending to the body politic? When well, we, you're when right. We shoehorn them into districts that, you know, that, that extend for hundreds of miles they're conjoined with people with whom they have nothing in common, represented by members of Congress that they never even see because that's not where they don't live in an area where the votes come from. What kind of message does it send about how, how much we actually value their participation in the political process? It's a devastating message. And yeah. I think as long as we have this system in place, we are going to get the political participation from the electorate that we deserve, and it's a damn shame. This is a great state, an educated state, an informed state, and we deserve a hell of a lot better than the machine politics that they've been ladling out in Annapolis. And I'm Amen. sorry to, I'm, I'm sorry to get into that monologue, but I agree with you that that statement from the Senate President it wasn't a gaffe. The man was, the man I, was just telling the truth. Yeah, that's and politics is often. Politicians sometimes get themselves in the most trouble when they tell the truth by accident, and he clearly told the truth. Um, Len, have you been following the the reorganization of the uh, what is it, the UMM board? Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm I think we 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 talked about the UMMs, um, and why is it that some of the people who creep up on the leadership of this board are all somehow tied back to the Senate president. <laughs> well, I think to, I think to ask that question is to answer it. You asked the question: Are we following it? You know, Ryan, we're following it, but we feel that they have missed the point. Oh, of course. They and have. you want to talk when you talk talk about tone deafness? Mm. They've come up with a new policy now where they have to where uh, when when UMS is procuring goods and services for the hospital system, it has to go through and be subject to a competitive process, right? And so board members who have uh, – who, who may also be interested vendors still have to go through a competitive process if they want to sell their software or get a construction contract or sell insurance policies, whatever. That completely misses the point. If you are a member of the UMS board, you have no business having any financial relationship with the University of Maryland medical system at all. None. I mean, how in the hell can a procurement officer for the University of Maryland system sit there and objectively evaluate for both technical and cost a bid proposal that comes across their desk for some, someone to whom they technically report? It's, you know, if they're it, if they're if they're selecting insurance services and one of the, one of the bid packages comes on the desk comes from Frank Kelly. Well, <laughs> well, how how the hell do you think that's going to turn out? You know, they're going to find they're they're going to do they're going to do uh, what we call government algebra. They know the answer in advance. 
they've got to go backward and show their work. <laughs> and you know what? That, on the part of that procurement officer, that's not corruption. That's job survival. Well, and so you should. I mean, the, the fact that the fact that these people are still, after all this, still going to have the opportunity to compete for for UMS contracts, while at the same time, uh, you know, participating in the governance of this hospital system is absolutely outrageous, and it violates every fundamental best practice and principle of nonprofit governance. It's it's just remarkable, and taxpayers have a right and obligation to be invested in this issue. They should be outraged, um, and I'm 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 going to dedicate some of my coverage to this. I we we can't let this go, Len. This is not an issue. We we just can't let it go. Um, I mean, I I had a laugh last week when I read a story about Anthony Brown running for governor again. We were laughing about that too. Yeah, that's that's an interesting story. I mean, I don't even know if it's worth talking about, but I, I we'll just leave it at that. He's a good man. I guess he's just kind of keeping his options open. But he's a good congressman, and he, um, my guess is that he will remain in the House of Representatives for many years to come. Yeah, and I I hear rumblings that Doug Gensler might run a run for governor again. <laughs> and so we we should just we could have the 2014 election all over again. <laughs> yeah, it's like it never happened. Um, and, yeah. you know, and then maybe this and then the 2020 Baltimore City election. Um, I, you know, I think that Ben Jealous is uh, he, he's considering a, a a mayoral bid. And it would be interesting to see if part of his platform would be to to put e-cigarettes in the hands of kids on every street corner um, since he's well. <laughs> well invested in the uh the e sig business. Um you know, I'm yeah, I'm indifferent on that. That's a big job. You know, we've talked about this before, but you know, right now the problems facing Baltimore City appear to be pretty intractable. But I lived in the District of Columbia some twenty five years ago. Yeah. And D C was thought to be a dying dream then too. D C was considered to be the myrtle ca- murder capital of this country in the mid nineties. And there were there were heroin needles and uh, just about any any drug that you could find you would want on the open market available on any street corner you wanted, and the situation seemed pretty hopeless. But a guy named Anthony Williams came in mm-hmm. and restored uh, restored the trust and confidence of Congress. He restored the trust and confidence of the people, and finally that of the private sector. And guess what? Money and capital started to flow back into the District of Columbia, and look at it now. So the District of Columbia had some challenges then that the city of Baltimore doesn't even have now, starting with the fact that 48% of the land mass in the district is off the tax rolls because it's uh, part of the federal government footprint. Baltimore has a lot of assets along with the enormous challenges strong, honest leadership with integrity and experience can make a difference. This is is probably the most important election in the history of the city coming up. Absolutely. And whatever Jack Young decides to do, I think he'll ultimately decide to run for mayor after being in the seat. Who knows? I do think that Mary Washington should seriously consider it. 
She says she's not. Yeah, I've talked I, to her about it. You see, I, yeah, I wish. I think but look, started. she just got elected to the state senate, and she's. Uh, but I will tell you, having I, I know Mary, and you know Mary well, and I, I, she's a powerhouse. She's gonna. She is the future of the Maryland uh, of Maryland politics, and I'm, I have a lot of great faith in her. I really do. I agree with you. If uh, if Catherine if Catherine Pugh um, tragically is a symbol of what Baltimore City is now, down on its heels and um, held back by its own its own um, failures of government, people like Mary Washington are what that city could be again. Amen. And for that um, matter, so is Corey McRae, and so is Antonio Hayes. And so are some of those smart young city council members that are coming up through the ranks, uh, led so capably by people like Brandon Scott. There's a lot to like in the city of Baltimore right now. Yeah, there there, there really is. Um, Len, I want to mention two more issues before we sign off for the week. Um, the governor dedicated June 28th as uh, the, a, a press freedom day. And last year, um, in 2018, on June 28th, we we remember that horrific day in Maryland history when um, a man who had a grudge stormed his way into the Annapolis offices of the Capitol Gazette newsroom, the premier newspaper of Annapolis, and he shot and killed five people. And here we are, one year ago. One year later, and we're, you know, I, I just, I, the, the, I don't know if I, I don't have the right combination of words to tell you how devastating that was. I mean, that was not just an attack on the Capital Gazette, on journalists, on that. That was that was an attack on all mothers and fathers and family. I mean, that's that's an attack on all all Marylanders. On all and, of us. You know, and I. I didn't know the people who were killed, but I want to mention them by name tonight. Um, editorial page editor uh, Gerald Fishman, who was 61, the assistant editor and columnist Rob Hassan, 59, sports writer and editor John McNamara, who was 56, sales assistant Rebecca Smith, who was 34 years old, and uh, community correspondent and the head of special publications Wendy Williams, who was 65 at the time of her death. It's not fair. I'm, I'm angry about it. Um, I'm, I'm outraged. And today, still to this day, I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think we've had any justice yet on this case, Lynn. It, it's, it's, it's just horrific um, that this could even happen, but it did. Uh, these, these wonderful people were, were targeted and killed and taken Far, far too early, and the pain that's been left over, not only for Marylanders, but mostly for these, these family members who agonize in pain every single day because their loved one was was taken by this deranged man who walked into a newsroom with a gun and decided to pull the trigger. I just – something failed. The system fa- – I and it, it's just hard to talk about because that could have been – you know, that could have been any one of – the, the people we know down who who sit in the state house who day after day dedicate their lives to producing 
a quality product and turning out the news for Marylanders to read and to better understand what's happening behind the doors of their government. And uh, I just, Lynn, it's, it's, it's just, it's horrifying, horrifying. Well, you know, I, I subscribe thoroughly to everything you just said. I only add that in addition to remembering those whose lives were tragically lost yeah. and wondering what could have been. I'll also say that the profession has risen up over this past year that's followed, and they've honored the memory of those people who were slain, those, those men and women, uh, by producing some of the most remarkable works of independent investigative journalism. And we've seen it. I mean, look at, look at people like Luke Broadwater, for instance, yeah. from the Baltimore Sun who went and did put some real elbow grease into the job, refused to take no for an answer time and time again, and that man took down a corrupt mayor. And that man exposed the corrupt workings of one of the most powerful institutions in Maryland civic life, yep. the University of Maryland Medical System. That was the work of journalism. Journalism still matters. The work that you do every day, Ryan, um, the, the stories that you've broken and we could go on and on and there's, there are so many good people out there working on the front lines who do so much maybe with less fanfare but those people through their sacrifice and through their the integrity with which they go about their work they're honoring those five men and women every day so we remember those who were, who were senselessly slain but man, we're getting reminders every day of why journalism now, more than ever, matters in our daily lives. Well, it's, it's been good it, to see. It's it's literally under attack, and it it certainly doesn't it help is. when when we have the leader of the free world, whose own self-inflated narcissistic ego can't handle being the president, cannot handle the scrutiny that comes along with. The greatest and most – the greatest power in the world to be criticized and then in turn calls journalists and news outlets the enemy of the people. It's disgusting. It should be rebutted when he says that, and I, I, I just have a very difficult time when this president, who is the most insecure and weak-kneed man to ever set foot in the Oval Office – to call journalists people who put their lives on the line. I mean, look, here's a guy that is that's cozying up to what Mohammed bin Salem, and and yet says nothing, almost nothing about Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered, dismembered. We don't even know where his body is, Len. And I, I and this president wants to call CNN the enemy of the people and fake news because they write stories about him that he doesn't like. And I just I think that is shameful. But you know, truth truth is always going to win out. It will. Yeah. Um, truth always wins out, and progress always wins in the end. And we and we as as powerful there's not there's not a power there's not a person on this earth that was that was powerful enough to preserve the buggy whip, and the washboard, and the cassette tape player, and there's not and there's not a person we've seen time and time there's not a person on earth strong enough, powerful enough to keep the truth from coming out. Um, yep. you know, we've seen it with Pew. We saw it with the 
University of Maryland in the aftermath of George McNair. We've gone time and time again where, where journalists brought the truth to light. And so, Ryan, you got a big job ahead of you, too. Keep doing it the way you've been doing it. We're proud of you. I will. I mean it. Well, I appreciate That means a and, lot. And I say that's the one who's a. Yeah, I, I, you're one of the biggest pains in the ass at times. You've, you've <laughs> held our feet to the fire so many times. And, you, you know, we ca- they try to steer you off of stories, and you keep pushing forward. And at the end of the day, it, it may burn our saddle, but we know that's what you're supposed to do. Well, that, that means a lot. Because at the end of the day, we work for the taxpayers. Um, that means a lot to me. And um, as we finish out this show, it's been fun. Um, I like these free-flowing shows where we just sort of had an, an agenda in our minds and we just go with it. Um, I watched the debates. Um, I, I saw your guy on Thursday night, John Hankenlooper. And it's always funny when I read Barry O'Connell, his stuff on Maryland uh, politics, <laughs> I, he, I, he likes to, to, to mix it up a bit and say that you have a, a rift with the boss who – um, had said some complimentary <laughs> words aimed at Kamala Harris, who, by the way, had a terrific yeah. night on Thursday evening, and she um, she highlighted an, uh, an issue that is prevalent in this country about race, and that was an important moment to have in this country. And uh, she stepped up and you know, by the way, you know, French, you know, Francho, he won't he won't admit to this, but uh, because he's a pretty modest guy. But he actually told me I was talking to him when he was on vacation. He called me a couple hours before the debate, and he said, "I don't know how she's going to do it, but Kamala Harris is going to light it up tonight." Uh-huh. And he goes, "That's pretty just good." Wait and see, she's going to light it up, and damn it, she didn't. Um, and as he said, I don't know who he's going to support, but we know who won that debate on Friday, on Thursday night. She was yeah. She uh, breathed a new life into her candidacy. But I, I also thought that um, – I, I really thought that she she brought up some, some interesting points. I do think that her record's going to come under scrutiny uh, soon, as every presidential candidate should. And I it'll be interesting to see I, – look, I, I know you're, you're a Hinkenlooper guy, and I don't understand why he's not getting more traction when he was an excellent governor. He really was. I mean and, – and, he was he, he he did a lot he's a small business guy he's a craft he he you know he sort of ignited this craft brewing uh this 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 whole movement and Colorado is just one of those great places to to drink beer um there's there's a lot of options out there but um the the, the debates they were they were interesting they were informative they were respectful I, I appreciate it that it wasn't a, a an all-out slugfest. Uh, you know, of course, at times they talked over. But, Len, let's be honest with one another. There's some candidates that just need to get out of the race. Just get out. Um, I I have a lot of I, – I got a lot of respect for Tim Ryan um, and in even John Delaney. But if you're pulling at 1% now, what do you stay in for? I mean, is it is it to get future exposure? What do you – what are you doing? And, and like Kirsten Gillibrand and and Cory Booker, who people said and 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 just talked glowingly that he had this wonderful night uh, on the first night, and he was the only person to raise his hand who said that he would do the Iran deal differently, and that was just stupid. And I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand why people thought Booker did that great. Booker's not going to win the nomination, 
The first night was all about Elizabeth Warren. So, I mean, if you're not Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, probably, probably yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, and, and, may- there, and there may and look, and there still may be room for a dark horse or two because it's maybe, early, and these people are going to undergo such scrutiny from the twenty-four hour, seven day a week, uh, you know, cable news cycle, and overexposure is a real risk in this media environment. We've talked about it, and there's a chance that someone who's hot this early could be overexposed. Have their light, have their record exposed under a heat lamp, and they could flame out. And at which point, the voters may start to sift through some of the uh, the uh, the discount bin and look at some of these other candidates. Maybe there's a there's a moment for a Michael Bennett, who had a pretty decent night. I thought the Julian yeah. Castro acquitted himself quite nicely. But you're right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure we're ever going to see our lonely eyes turn to Marianne Williamson or Andrew Yang, who, by the way should be the voice on my Headspace app. He has such a soothing presence when he talks. Oh, yeah. I, I don't like even him. know what he talks about. Just my blood pressure comes down. <laughs> but my blood pressure went up listening. Just... I was going to say, my blood pressure went up listening to Marianne Williamson. Man, did we all come across a girl like that when we were in college? Um, you know, she's oh, she's, uh... her, she's chatty. We're thinking... Yeah, you know, we're thinking, wow, this might be going somewhere, and it turns out she was just batshit crazy. Um, <laughs> she, she, um, man, I, I read a story about Republicans donating to her campaign to keep her in the next elections, which is, or keep her in the next debates, which is hilarious. But, um, Lynn, I, I saw some polls. I don't know if. The, the vice pre look the vice president got into he was in a boxing match and Kamala won that round but by no means does this mean that she is going to immediately take over the field um, no I don't see it no. she look she's got a lot to overcome as well as far as name recognition as far as money and and, and Bernie has a sizable contingency. Of the Democratic Party, even though he's not a registered Democrat, which is funny. Um, And and Elizabeth Warren, I think that – I really think that Elizabeth Warren could coalesce the the left-leaning side of the party and say, okay, I'm I'm younger than Bernie. I think I'm a little bit more likable than Bernie, and I think she's going to siphon off of his votes. And the more that you hear from Elizabeth Warren, who needs to be – Discussed in the context of putting out serious policy proposals, like like them or hate them, but I mean she's rising she's rising up through the ranks and running a methodical campaign. There's no doubt about it. She's run a great campaign, so definitely I think that yep. she's definitely putting in the work. But I still think that it's going to be difficult to knock out Biden. But Biden, look, he looked tired on the stage. He looked, um, he just. I don't know. I, I don't know if he just. Yeah, Ryan. I, Ryan, I, I talked about this on Facebook last week. Joe is like the guy. He's he's like the absent-minded tourist who's been driving through that same small town for, <laughs> for 50 years. Yeah. And, you, and you, by now you should know where all the speed traps are, where all the radar guns are, where all the cameras are. But he always gets pulled over. He always gets a ticket um, just by going a little too fast. And not paying attention, and he's always surprised. I can't figure out whether it's just 
naive, disturbing sense of naivete that maybe things will be different this time. Maybe it's arrogance that he can just talk his way out of any situation. Or maybe he just loses his sense of focus and discipline when he's in a big moment. I don't know what it is, but my concern for Joe Biden is this. Donald Trump is one of the it was one of the great messengers in the history of politics. I mean, think about the way he is he he is able to brand and to make lines stick. And if Joe Biden is this wobbly in these very early stages of the presidential campaign, six months before we're even going to the polls to cast a vote, how comfortable are we going to be with him in yeah. late October a good point. with Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Michigan, all in play, and him under and him, you know, being being followed by every every um, every news camera in the free world. Yeah, waiting I, for I, him to say something dumb. And I think that the strategy for the candidates who are in that that second that second place position, even the third place position, whether it be Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders or Mayor Pete or any of the other candidates who are slowly rising, Booker maybe, they need to knock out the inevitability argument that Biden – that a Biden voter says, well, he can beat Trump because – or we, we're, we're with Joe because he can beat Trump. But with other voters, with other candidates, they often have a, a more – uh, I, I guess well-reasoned position about why they're supporting their candidate. It's they're they're somehow magnetically drawn to Elizabeth Warden, Warren's plans, or Bernie Sanders' longtime activism, or Kamala Harris's narrative and her story, um, or Mayor Pete um, for a reason. But you know the, the Biden voters tend to be older, they're white, but then it's also interesting that he has a sizable portion. Of African American voters, and um, but then again, he doesn't. Biden doesn't draw in the number of college-educated younger voters between the ages of eighteen and thirty-four, like Warren or Bernie Sanders does. So I think the, the candidates' de- goal. De- Democratic Democratic voters ultimately, or Democratic presidential campaigns, I should say, ultimately fall into a beer track versus wine track dynamic. Where you have one front-running candidate making the play for uh, the the working class, middle class, ordinary guy, um, black voters are part of that coalition. Bill Clinton occupied that beer track lane in his 1992 race, and then you have these other campaigns. And invariably, there will be another candidate who will coalesce the what you call the wine track, the the upper income, affluent suburban vote. They tend to be uh, more focused on procedural issues such as uh, political reform. Um, they're not necessarily as concerned with the economics of the moment because it's a little more financially secure. They can afford to worry about things like foreign policy and the environment. And in the past, we've seen candidates like Paul Songus and Bill Bradley uh, <laughs> try to name. occupy that lane. And typically, the guy who's a woman who successfully occupy who successfully uh, nails down the beer track, who is able to coalesce uh, African American voters and working class whites, 
will win the nomination because the arithmetic of the delegate selection process of the Democratic Party works so heavily in their favor. Um, That's what Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Bernie was more of a wine track voter. Hillary was a beer track voter. So you're right. I mean, someone's going to have – for someone to emerge, uh, Biden's going to have to either be knocked off his perch or he's going to have to self-destruct through his own mistakes and gaffes. Well, Um, yeah, and and, and Joe Biden is – you're right. Time will tell. Joe Biden is known for self-destructing and engulfing in his own gaffes, but that's not to say that it's going to happen this time. I don't know what's going to happen. Anybody who says they know how this race is going to turn out at this point, at this juncture, we can all make guesses and suppositions, and we can – speculate but i gotta tell you lynn i don't i don't have any idea what's going to happen um it's 280 some days until the first votes are cast in iowa and uh i I think we might have an idea by the time california rolls around who might be the nominee but um then again who knows every 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 election that i've been alive for uh, the, you know, the the narrative a year out was completely 180 degrees different from the way things eventually turned out. Yeah, and look, people remember debate snippets, and that's why I think that candidates have to understand that they need moments. They need those those tiny. Tw- it's it's almost like speaking in a tweet format. They have to get people to remember something specific about the debate. But I don't ultimately believe that debates are, are are these big winners and losers on the presidential campaign trail. I, I, um, they're, not as, president, they're not as memorable anymore, Ryan, because the, because news happens so be. fast right now. And, and, I mean, well, and we still we still remember the we still remember the similar moments from debates gone by. The, the Lloyd Benson take down a Dan ah, Quayle. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I mean, I Mike, knew Jack Mike, Kennedy. Mike Dukakis. Yeah. Mike Dukakis, you know, with his cold clinical answer to the question about his wife's hypothetical rape and murder. Um, but in this day and age, when the news cycle is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and things happen with such velocity, there'll be, you know, by this time next week, we'll have forgotten Kamala Harris's moment. We'll be on to something else entirely. I want to give one shout. As, as we end the show, I want to give a shout out. One of my favorite books to read. And I, I've I've read it a couple of times. It's a long one, but and Lynn, I'm sure you familiar, you're familiar with this. I know what you're going to say. I, go go for it. The the most famous book ever written on American politics was written by an American journalist and writer called What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer, <laughs> and he was he yep. died in Baltimore, was born in Rochester, and Richard Ben Kramer wrote. Um, a thousand plus page book all about the 1988 presidential campaign. And it's truly, truly a masterpiece. It is, it is my favorite book on election politics. Lynn, I could read it a hundred times and never get bored and learn something new, but Richard Ben Kramer had this incredible knack for telling a story, extrapolating detail and just piecing these magnificent stories about this campaign together, and it's truly one of the. I, I'm telling you, it is a nonfiction masterpiece, Len. And, and anybody who wants to gain some insight into the motivations and psychology of Joe Biden would be wise to go back and read that book. Uh, and as you know, Ryan, it kind of it kind of hops, you know, it kind of hops in the non 
you know, in, in a non-linear sequence. Uh, we'll spend some time with Bob Dole, then we'll come back to to Joe Biden, then we'll go to Gary Hart, and but the chapter, I think the chapter that I'm thinking about was called Night of the Bronco. Yes. And this is yes. when Joe Biden and his <laughs> pack of advisors, he was obsessed with finding a new home to buy in Wilmington, and they're driving around all night looking for real estate. One of the great fly-on-the-wall chapters of any political book written at any time. Um, you and I could spend a whole hour just a second what it takes. I, I, I could, and, and maybe we could come back to that in another show. I'm telling you, Lynn, it, and people out there, I'm sure p- the astute listeners of A Minor Detail know exactly the book that we're referring to. But um, I was I, I remember when – I remember when Richard Ben Kramer, when he died, um, he, he died very young. In fact, he died uh, in 2013 in January. Um, this man was a brilliant writer, and I, I looked to him. Um, and funny enough, Len, he lived in Chestertown, um, and uh, he uh, he actually died at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, and I should mention, too, that he also wrote a book on Ted Williams, uh, too. That is my um, one of my my, my one of my all-time favorite baseball players. Um, so um, we're lucky here in Maryland. We we have the best of uh, American politics. I mean, think about it. We have access to so many important people in our history right here in the state of Maryland. Like Barry O'Connell. Like Barry O'Connell and Red Jimmy. Um, and Eric – yeah, Tim, Timothy Little of um, – what is that? Outside of – Delaware politics or whatever group that he has. Um, yeah, I and, can't even keep it straight. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, the other the other, the other book I'd recommend the next time we talk, which you just you know is is uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail '72 by Hunter Thompson, and it's written in the Gonzo style of journalism. So I mean, it's uh, it is not a, it is not traditionally written by any by any stretch, but the insights. And the passion of a man for reform politics, it's white hot. I mean, it is it is still one of the most consequential books on presidential politics of my lifetime or yours. I, if you haven't read it, I've probably read it 50 times. I can memorize that book by now. I, uh, I know it. I know it well, Lynn. And, and another shout out to a book if we're talking about um, some of some of the finest books. Um, it, it's a, it's a little bit different genre, but still. Um, in, in the same area of politics, um, pick up a copy and you can find it anywhere. If you go on Amazon of James A. Baker of the third, it's called work hard, study and keep out of politics. And it's the former secretary of state chief of staff to the president, um, to the late George H. W. Bush, James A. Baker, um, one of our nation's longstanding statesmen, um, and, and truly one of the most decent men in politics who got involved at the age of 40, uh, when he lost his first wife and George H.W. asked him to come work on his campaign and the rest is history. And I just, I love the book. I, I can't, I couldn't put it down. You, me, Eric Lutke should, should come on one night. We should maybe meet at the, at the tavern or tap house of I would choice love it. or his. And we could just spread some books out and just talk about our, some of our favorite contributions to the genre. And whether it's, whether it's that or, Miami and the Siege of Chicago by Norman Mailer, mm-hmm. or Marathon by Jack Trebond and Jules Whitcover. We could go it's on a and brilliant on. Brilliant book. But, but we, can, 
we could we could probably eat the three of us over taquitos and and IPAs <laughs> could sit down could could break this thing down and I bet you guys would end up being friends again. I I think so, and I would also extend a, a, a very warm invitation to District Nine, District Thirty Nine's fighter and champion of all things democratic politics, Kirill Resnick, um, the good man, the a a a, a great man of and of erudite intelligence, and someone whom uh, is 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 misunderstood, myself included. Um, so, you know, Lynn, I. These shows, man, we could we could get into it for for hours at a time. I don't even know what hell we we were originally talking about. I'm not I sure how know. we ended up on Norman Mailer and Hunter Thompson, but I'm glad we did. It's a hell of a I, journey. I'm glad we did too, and I'm thinking, Len, that we could get a calls after party going um, now that we're heading into July. I got I got the space booked at Snappers again. If you're up for it. We just put those two tables together in the back, sit down. Maybe we get a little something to eat and drink before we go on the air so we don't have to chat and chew literally. But if That's you're right. going, I'm going to be there. So let's let's do it again, man. Yeah, and this year, um, after interviewing the famous Bruce Barriano, uh, you get an invitation into the tent rather than, than scalping tickets on the outside of the Main Street coming into uh, <laughs> Crisfield. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, the Solon of St. Margaret's Road, Bruce Barriano. The uh, amazing. If you're going to be in the, the tent this year, oh. yeah. The well, two of you together—it's we'll, like watching history written in thunder and lightning. Ah, jeez. No, I had the opportunity to interview him over session, and Lan, it was truly one of the most fascinating and compelling 45 minutes of my life. Because one thing about Bruce is that he's going to tell you the truth. He's honest with you. And um, it's just he makes for a great interview. He does. He makes for a great interview. Um, Bruce Barry, one of the most fa- one of the most fascinating rooms in all the world, is a corner of a room in Bruce Barry Onder's house that is dedicated exclusively to Maryland state government and campaign memorabilia. I mean, he has things in there, you know, campaign buttons, you know, Bill Scranton for president, 1964, all the way with Mo Udall, 76. Mo Udall, um, a senator, a great Mo senator U- from from uh, from New Mexico. Now you're thinking about his brother Stuart. Uh, Mo was from Arizona. And, you know what? There was uh, and a, Mo- there was a, yeah, you're right. Stu right. and Stu went on to become. Uh, JFK's Secretary of the Interior, Mo ran for president in '76 and was a runner-up to Jimmy Carter. That's right. Um, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of. You're right. Um, and and you know he relayed to me when I interviewed Bruce. He relayed to me. Do Do you know who his favorite fav, his favorite governor was? You probably do. Marvin Mandel. That's right. He and. He he goes back with Mandel, and he said his second favorite is Larry Hogan, and and I believe him. I think he's he's definitely telling the truth. He loves Larry. I agree with that. Um, but no, but you should, it, it, as a political junkie in your own right, you should just ask at some point to go see this room because I was at a dinner party, and I just spent the whole night back there just looking through the campaign memorabilia, and asking, hey, where did you get this button from? from the Birch Buy campaign and uh, where'd you get this? And uh, Ted Bonatulis for governor, huh? I mean, and every piece of 
paraphernalia he has has a story attached to it. It might even be true. But everything has a story attached to it. And it was just a great night, and um, I know you would love it. Lynn, I want to end on this. And you might – you're going to laugh, but I had some friends over who are involved in Maryland politics, and this name came up today, and I, I want to celebrate it. The, the name that is indelibly inscribed in the minds of many uh, longtime Marylanders, Ross Z. Pierpoint. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Ross, Ross Pierpoint. Zimmerman Pierpoint, M.D. Mm. My goodness. Uh, first time I ever, first campaign cycle I ever worked on in 1990, the Republican gubernatorial campaign came down to a two man heat between retired Foreign Service Officer Bill Shepard, William yep. Shepard, who was so wanting for a campaign running mate, they eventually uh, turned to his <laughs> wife, Lois, and she became his nominee for <laughs> lieutenant governor. But his chief opposition was Ross C. Pierpont, the indomitable one from Baltimore. And, and, and uh, a dogged campaigner, boy, if you, if, you, if you see him on the campaign trail and you say so, Dr. Pierpont, how's it going? Be prepared for a 20-minute summary of exactly how it's going. And he could always, right up to the end, he could always spin some sort of a scenario whereby, you know, whereby his, the opposition was going to falter and he was going to win this time. And you'd almost believe it. May he, character. He, he died in 2005, and he, uh, he graduated from Catonsville High School, um, Catonsville, where our good friend Don Moeller's from. So, Lynn, boy, we 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 talked about a lot. We got a little off topic, but that's all right. I'm glad that we could do this tonight. It's fun. I love these kind of shows, really, where we could just meander and and wander around the different political topics. You and I are you could t- you and I it's could talk for hours. We could. It's yeah, just the dead of summer. This is one where we can just kind of hang back and just chat a little bit. You know, absolutely. There'll, be, there'll come a time for more intense conversations. That's right. And I wanted to suggest to you, Lynn. I know the comptroller. He loves to get out and go um, everywhere, all over Maryland. There's not a place that, he, yeah, or event. But if if he's around on July the sixth, next weekend, next Saturday. Um, the annual salute to independence in Washington County is happening at the Antietam Battlefield. That'd be a great event for him to get out and meet some oh, people. Oh, wow. Let me yeah. check it out. There's I'll a, get back to you tomorrow. There'll be usually about 40,000 people. They have the the, the world-famous uh, Maryland Symphony Orchestra um, that plays and conducted by maestro Elizabeth Schultz, um, who I, I grew up in, in the city of Hagerstown listening to the Maryland Symphony Orchestra. Um, at the Maryland Theater, and uh, they they have this wonderful event, and every year they play uh, Tchaikovsky's um, famous 1812 Overture, and that, that ends with fireworks and fanfare, and I encourage anybody, oh, it's, it's beautiful, it is, it is Americana to the core, where we sing patriotic songs, and you show up, and you put out your blanket, and you sit on the, the hill, um, oh, from overlooking the uh, from the convention center at the Antietam Battlefield, thousands of Marylanders gather every year. They have picnics. There's young children walking around. The Maryland National Guard is there. In fact, Larry Hogan made a, a, a guest appearance there last year, and it was it's all around a beautiful event. And I believe they've been doing it for over 30 years. 
and you're don't, likely don't tell see, me we all live in the best country on earth. My God, that sounds good. We, and you will see the imitable Ron Bowers there every year, and his and my his, goodness, are you serious? Ron Bowers will be there with his mother Pearl. I'm I'm sure of it. So, boy, Ron Bowers. Um, they, they, they never did make a finer leader in Washington County, with the with the possible exception of former Mayor Steve Sager, perhaps. I'm sorry, but that was just for your benefit. When I started in this business, working for John Willis in 1995, he sat me down and walked me through all 23 counties in Baltimore City, and and he and he he got to Washington County. And he said, you're going to have two dozen people who are going to tell you that they're Paris's guy, okay? Don't listen to any of them. When, you, when you're making moves in Washington County, you start with Ron Bowers. You start Ron, with Ron Bowers. Ron Bowers, the former five-term county. Ron Bowers, the former five-term county commissioner whom I met when I was in, uh, when I was in second grade who came to speak to my – my uh, my second grade class, um, and uh, ever since then he's he's been a, a a friend to me, somebody who's given me advice over the years, um, and uh, an all around interesting fellow. But uh, Lynn, if well, we go, Don, if Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is what a, sadly what politics is, well then Ron Bowers was what politics was, and it was no. and it was it was he harkens back to a time when it was a noble honorable profession. It will be again. If Ron, if you're listening, we love you, man. Maybe we'll see you next weekend. I'll get a call probably tomorrow and first thing in the morning if he's because li- he listens um, sometimes and he'll he'll say, you know, Ron will Ron will say, I heard you talking about me. Um, Lynn, thank you for coming on tonight. Thank you for spending this hour and a half with me. It means a lot to me. And uh, give the controller my best. And I'm sure you and I will see each other soon. Hey, as always, I appreciate the opportunity. Love you, buddy, and keep up the great work. We're proud of you. All right, buddy. Love you, too. See you later. Bye. See you. Bye-bye. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like a Minor Detail podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring a Minor Detail podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at a minor detail.com. Thanks so much for listening.